Hi, uh, today I'm with Hugh McCarthy, who's an excellent mind, uh, fabulous guy. He's a retired head teacher from Northern Ireland, and he's been out in the forefront uh, advocating for children. And uh, Hugh, tell us, uh, first of all, today's February 23, 2023. Um, Hugh, tell us a little bit about how things are going on the other side of the pond, uh, how goes the battle, uh, what motivated you, and what are the, uh, you know, war fronts still uh, extant uh, with COVID-19 in the year 2023. Yeah, well, it's, um, uh, hello, everybody. Um, as uh, Randall was saying, uh, I was a head teacher for 23 years. I I survived. If I, I've just celebrated, if that's the word, 50 years in education. I'm still on uh, one of the leading councils here in Northern Ireland. And I did a bit of lecturing, quite a lot of lecturing in, in leadership. Um, and I'm coming up to having fought this campaign, and it is a campaign for three years. I made my first presentation about this in May 2020. And I was just checking the other day and I had a meeting with the chief executive over coffee and recited what I'd said three years ago. Only now, of course, there's three years of live evidence to support what I've been saying three years ago. Mm -hmm. And before I hand back to Randall, Randall asked me what motivated. It didn't feel right. It didn't feel right. And very quickly, it became apparent that this wasn't anything to do with the children. Children weren't affected. They weren't infecting any, anybody. So why were we implementing restrictions which had a terrible impact on them? And that's what I couldn't understand. And that's what I repeated over and over again. Why were we doing it? What, what were we doing to the children and why? That's an incredible point. I mean, I think in your Daily Skeptic article, you point out the survival rate for children is 99.99987% or something like that. I might have put an extra nine in there, um, but it's minimal. Um, the children, such as, as they have had deleterious effects from coronavirus, probably have it at a lower rate than influenza. And they, the ones that I've understood as deaths in the United States have been with comorbidities of significant uh, degree. Uh, one 14-year-old was uh, 380 pounds, um, something of that sort. Um, and another, you know, cases with leukemia, stuff like that, with uh, damaged immune systems to begin with, uh, whose life expectancy might not have been so uh, high, um, you know, on, the, on a cancer ward and so forth. But for general run-of-the-mill walking around, uh, walk, you know, kids in, in school, um, the mortality rate was essentially zero. And, and could I just come in, come in there? Uh, I mean, that's the key point. And those are the very questions that I posed over and over again to our chief medical officer and public health authority. In Northern Ireland, it is a public health authority, incidentally, it's not, not quite the same as England. And to our politicians, those, those articles you refer to are entitled, Why Are We Vaccinating Children? Why Are We Vaccinating Babies? And in fact, I've asked, how many babies have actually died of COVID? And how many children have died of COVID? And, and it turns out, as you correctly point out in the States, Jessica Rose, amongst others, says none. Um, Canada, the Canada Health Alliance, says none in Canada. And there are similar stats from government sources in Ireland, Northern Ireland, Scotland, uh, and across Europe. 
not a healthy child has died anywhere that I can establish in the Western world. So why would you uh, introduce restrictions on them at all? And, and this is what really annoys me. Why can't you get an answer? Why can't somebody answer? Why doesn't anyone ask other than people like us? But why can't you get an answer when you when you do ask? It's a very straightforward question. The questions I ask are chief medical officers, as I pointed out, although I don't think it's in the article, as I pointed out in the letter, is these are questions which should have been addressed before introducing the policy um, about the dangers to children, about how many have died, how many are in hospital, uh, how VAERS uh, informs his decision, uh, what scientific evidence is behind masks, vaccinations, school closures. Um, indeed, I asked him to confirm that had he read the research in school closures, would he confirm that he would never recommend that again? A perfectly reasonable position, I would have thought. Um, no answers. So have you used a public forum? I assume you've, I, I, well, I, I know as a matter of fact, you've uh, writing, you've been writing. Where do you get published? Uh, what's the, um, uh, the, the breadth of your um, article's reach? Uh, how has it been received? And, and did you receive pushback and or censoring, you know, such as we've had, you know, the quieting down of voices in opposition? Well, um, I got the first, there are 30 or 31 of these now, all untitled, uh, conveniently. Uh, what are we doing to the children? <laughs> um, the first 11 were published in a, a, a national newspaper here. Uh, and that's to be fair. Now, that has a fairly widespread coverage across Northern Ireland. Um, it seemed to fall on deaf, ear, deaf ears. I also had uh, 11 presentations to one of the councils I was on. Um, I do have to say I made 11 proposals, uh, no masking, no school closures, no sending children home, no testing, no vaccinating the school premises, and then round the loop again and uh, lost them all 11 nil. Um, now, the other articles are published in publications like the Daily Skeptic, UK Column News, um, quite quite frequently, some are published by Pandata. Mm -hmm. um, and in terms of a, a wide group here, and one of the major political parties is broadly speaking on my side of the fence. Um, and that's, that's heartening. Um, and I continue to supply them with information. Indeed, they supply me with information. And obviously, Northern Ireland is a very small place. Um, and I would have known some of these people, I've taught some, I'd have met them in other school-based meetings. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of, well, I, I'm still on coffee drinking terms with the chief executives. I met one a few days ago, two hours, presented all the papers again. Um, and we'll see how that goes. Mm -hmm. So, I'm a, I wish I could say I was making headway. Mm -hmm. I'm certainly still in the game. And there's certainly a very healthy group of people, uh, groups of people, I have to say, who are, who are joined up now. Mm -hmm. um, and we're, we, we're, we're definitely moving forward. 
But, and here's the key thing, Randall, just say, as far as I can make out across the world, the major players, the finance and the philosophy is still there. No one really is coming out and saying, very few people, we know the odd one and we'll maybe speak about them, are coming out and saying, no, no, we got this wrong and I'm sorry and I wouldn't do it again. And there is still this troubling undercurrent of masks, testing, our NHS, for example, here in Northern Ireland, and our care homes, attempt to insist on masks. So you know, the doctors, most many doctors, you have to wear a mask before you come in? No. Hospitals, there's masks, signs all over the doors, care homes, the same. And yet the overwhelming evidence about masks and much of it recently. And, and if I may, I could read you something about masks. Well, oh, please, please. Yeah. Um, you'll be aware, I'm sure, of the Cochrane report. Yes. Which really ought to have put this to bed. Mm -hmm. I mean, Professor Heiningen, who was a, a joint co-author, told the Northern Iron Executive in August 2020, that's our government, by the way. Uh, in August 2020, by all means recommend masks, but don't say it's evidence-based because there is no evidence. Now, normally speaking, if a professor from Oxford University comes over to Northern Ireland and says something, most people pay attention, mm -hmm. but not us. Now, Professor Heinegan has been totally consistent. The Cochrane Report bears it out. No evidence that masks work. And as I said the last time, and it's worth repeating because we have to keep repeating it, and I'll say why in a moment if you ask me. I have to keep saying it. Nowhere in the world has masks worked. As we've said, if cases are running at that level, I've said this before, over and over again, and masks are mandated, then anybody would know that if they worked, infections would fall. No state in America, as you know from the work of is it Ian Miller? Uh, no country in the Western world has seen that happen. And here's what Balacharva said. At this point, uh, Professor Balacharva, excuse me, at this point, every public agency, local, national, international, that asserts that community masking is effective in controlling COVID community spread has revealed itself as incapable of scientific reasoning on this topic. Now, you can't get any clearer than that. It is without evidence, yet the mass cause huge harms, and we may return to that. Um, and yeah. yet, yeah, yet there's an undercurrent. No, it's been crazy. You know, I've, I've been doing, uh, I, I started my weekly uh, coronavirus conversation, sometimes just conversing with myself, I'm not sure what, what, what uh, that category that puts me in, but <laughs> when I couldn't get company, you listen. <laughs> uh, I, I, uh, I started doing this uh, about three years ago, and it was mostly because in, in a similar vein as you, uh, I was promulgating information and putting things out, and it was all, I think, very logical. I tried to, you know, pride myself on my kind of lo logical Occam's razor, um, which, <laughs> and, and it was all deaf ears. I mean, people just, you know, would be... You know, but we have to, we have, you know, there was no real answer. We have to do whatever, everything we can. 
And, you know, so a lot of this was kind of flailing around. Um, but along the way, you know, I've been watching the data and watching these experiments. We, we were uh, incapable in certain areas of doing experimentation. It's hard to do experimentation on a live active uh, pandemic or virus or whatever, because humans uh, don't really, we can't corral them into, into study groups uh, in, in real time. Now, that being said, there was the Diamond Princess, I'm sure about what you know, um, that was an experiment that, that you know, pretty conclusively showed the children didn't get any symptoms at all. Uh, they were on the boat uh, and the numbering in the hundreds and the, the young staff uh, members didn't get any symptoms. They didn't even know they had an illness. And, and um, you know, both of us are, are, are under 35, so it's not going to really affect us. But, you know, the, the people who, who did have issues were, were the elderly. Um, and, and, and we love our elderly. Um, and if we knew any of them, you know, we should say hello and so forth. But, you know, but, but, you know, you mentioned Dr. Bhattacharya, you know, he uh, and um, Martin Kuldorf and uh, Sanjeev Gupta, um, you know, made the great Barrington Declaration um, along with uh, Brownson Institute as, as it was uh, nascent at the time, uh, which was focused protection. And uh, my, uh, now my late um, mother-in-law uh, was in her late 80s and early 90s throughout this. And she later died from other causes uh, a few months ago, and, and God rest her soul. But um, <clears throat> you know that we focused our protection on her. So um, you know we we were careful around her, and uh, other people were, and so forth. And she had caregivers coming in and out two, three times a day, um, and that was not any reason to restrict her grandchildren. You know, she has grandchildren who are um, you know varying ages, but some of them are you know dating and college and high school and all this and that. And, and um, you know, to have their lives turned upside down and continue to do so uh, was, was, I think, a, a, a strange moral um, equation. Um, and I'm wondering whether you might speak to that just in a general basis. I mean, we, we have the, the particulars of things that were done, um, but I, you know, I don't want to turn all Jungian or Freudian here, but what do, my, my mother, usually, when she had a conundrum of this sort, like one child did something and the other child didn't, she'd be like, and, and you know, I'm, I'm sorry, but we, we used to, you know, kind of imitate her a little bit. Like she distraught me, like, what's the reason? What's the reason that this happens? Why does something, you know, some people do this, some people do that. But what, what is the reason? What's the rationale that's, that teachers, you know, whose, whose job, whose um, raison d'etre, whose you know, whole essence is for caring for children, uh, how, how do things get flipped around? Uh, what, 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 what is, what is the, 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 the fault? What's, what's the, you know, the, the, the problem here? What, what happened? <laughs> Sorry, it's a, uh, I don't know if it's too tough a question or too broad, but do you have any insights on that? Both, um, just, just going both broad um, and tough, but going back to the Great Barrington um, Declaration, as you said, in Brownstone, I never understood what was controversial about focus protection. Defined as protect those who need protected and let everybody else get on with their lives. Now, I spoke to uh, Professor Gupta, uh, I was in communication with her fairly regularly around that time as, as it happened, and she was here in Northern Ireland. And, and I asked her why she wasn't on TV. She was just on the radio. She couldn't get on the TV. You asked me a wee while about censorship. Now, all of us have, have intuitively protected those that need protected in ways that actually protect them. So our children go on a bicycle, you put a helmet on them, mm -hmm. allow them to go out on a busy road. 
when my mother was alive, if I had a bad cold or a sore throat or whatever, I said, Mum, I've got a bit of a bit of a cold here. I'm not going to come over. And I left it with her to say, ah, come on, I want to see you. Or, or not. Um, now, I didn't understand why focus protection or precision shielding, as I and Addis called it, very, very similar, mm-hmm. or, or uh, Dr. Katz had targeted protection, I think. I didn't understand why that was in any way uh, controversial. Um, and it still isn't. <laughs> um, going on to the question, why? Um, well, first of all, there's a hierarchy, um, a very clear hierarchy of uh, authority. And um, it, it comes from on high. Most teachers go into work, they follow regulations, um, they basically do what they're told, and the unions got on the side of closed schools, put in shielding, put in screens, wash your hands every two minutes, put on masks. And once that happened, the, the game was over. Supported, I, I don't know if you know it or not, but supported by wall-to-wall propaganda. There was a four, four o'clock meeting of the prime minister uh, with flanked by the chief medical officer and the chief scientific officer giving us the death tolls uh, with COVID, of course. Uh, there were signs everywhere. And then there was a propaganda, which was, Close schools to um, slow down transmission, which they which they knew at the time was false. There was no evidence at all surrounding schools, and it was coming out at the same time as they were telling us that there was. So the European CDC, for example, and the public health authorities, uh, public health England, as well as then said, the children aren't taking it home. Um. Dr. Ross Jones, schools were closed for no reason. All this was evidence that they were aware. Now, you're asking me a psychological question. Mm. How come the country, the people, were so easily frightened? And I'm afraid that's above my pay grade. Why was a certain group of people so easily frightened? Even when I presented the evidence to my board, not coming from me, but coming from people who have spent a lifetime um, investigating viruses and pandemics and what have you, directly coming from them, I couldn't even get them to research it, let alone take notice of. Normally speaking, if, if you get a report from, we'll say, Harvard professors or Stanford professors or Oxford professors as educationists, Oh, that's that's what we have to do. That's what we follow. And, and my reports were, were they're not my reports as such. Even Ofsted reports, which in all, Ofsted reported in 2020 that most children were going back educationally. Ofsted mm, is the body that inspects mm-hmm. in England, Wales, England, Wales, Northern Ireland. Well, ours is slightly different, but. They reported that most, ch- the majority of the word they use, actually, the majority of children were going back educationally. Now, in communication, reading, numeracy, physical development, and independence. 2020, 
And their most recent report, and I've got it here sort of in front of me, the spring of 2022. Listen to this. They've noted, now remember, this is the body inspector schools. Mm-hmm. Delays in babies' physical development, babies suffering delays in learning to walk, babies unable to talk, regression in children's independence, delays in speech and language, children with limited vocabulary, babies struggling to respond to basic facial expression. For me, that's, and for anybody that should say, alarms bell ringing. One uh, research carried out in Ireland in October 2022, 2022, found that babies born during March to May 2020, when Ireland was locked down, were less likely to be able to say at least one definitive word, point or wave goodbye by the age of one year, by 12 months. Now, for me, this highlights that the, what you said, we've got it all the wrong way around. You, you spoke about your mother there. Scott Atlas said a wee while ago that it was the father's job to protect his children, mm-hmm. not the other way around. And here we, ha- here we have um, government research telling us the, this damage not only is it happening, but it's long-lasting. NFER, National Foundation for Education Research, found delays in three, four, and five-year-olds and said these delays affect lifetime chances. It isn't just, right, it's here now and we can, we can, we can make it up. We can't. The hospital, uh, Great Ormond Street Hospital, Dr. Golden, found they were two, two years behind by the age of five. And I, I, if if you wanted me, I could talk on about the educational regression going up through SATs. America, as you know, NEPs, they're your national assessment tests, the worst on record. Your education secretary called it the results appalling as your results have gone back, I think, 21 months by the age of 12 or whatever year the yep, test yep. credit. And then and that's so the thing is... There, there wasn't that mar- there wasn't that much margin in many neighborhoods to begin with. We have um, you know we have a kind of a, a large variance, I think in educational level neighborhood by neighborhood. We have poor neighborhoods, middle class, wealthy and so forth. Now the poor neighborhoods ordinarily, you know 2019 world um, had lower results than better neighborhoods. and that, that I think has to do with you know how much education is happening behind the scenes, parenting, uh, you know, family dinners. Uh, a lot of the, the families that are not cohesive to begin with and aren't providing books and education and nurturing environment for educational advancement, i.e., you know, what we call it inner city um, oftentimes, but it's nothing about the city. It's nothing about being in a city. I grew up in a, in a city. I grew up in New York City. I grew up technically inner city. Um, so did, so, so did there's I. nothing about that. About and so did Ben Carson. Yeah. There's nothing physically about your placement one way or another that that's going to determine your educational um, uh, success. But anyway, to, to cut to the point, um, you know, those are the kids who did even worse, worse. You know, I, don't, I, I know I'm doubling the, the, the term there, but they were already worse to begin with. And they got worse, worse. Um, there, there, there's the, the variance 
you know, if you look at it as a splay, as a kind of a Gaussian curve, you know, every everything, you know, falls into kind of like a statistical Gaussian curve. And um, what's happened is that the splay has gotten wider, that there are more kids doing more, you know, again, redundant, more poorly um, than before. And these kids tend to be the ones who are doing poorly or <laughs> making up words uh, to begin with. And so what we did, you know, everyone's like, always like, well, what about the children? What about our inner cities? What about the poor? You know, th this was a, 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 a dagger um, in those um, efforts. And, and you know, the people who had, had more. Um, so if you, I, I've been looking to come up with a word for this, but kind of the cushioned, um, laptopable um, jobs, the people who uh, can kind of sit at home and do a fair amount of their life on Zoom or uh, Google Docs or, or Slack and so forth and kind of get things done, you know, because their, their jobs are verbal, their jobs are writing, their jobs are directive, uh, as opposed to the physical economy where people have to make things and get out and do stuff and move things around and so forth. You know, so there's, a, there's kind of always been a you know, class difference. And, and the ones in the upper class um, were somewhat insulated from the damages to the lower class both because they don't hang out with them that much and because, you know, it's not in their world and their orbit. But a lot of the directors obviously come from the top down and the bottom suffered and the bottom suffered doubly um, over this. And it's just, you know, all the all kind of the, the um, say, there tend to be more left than right, um, you know, talking points we always hear about, we should be green, we should be sustainable, we should be caring about the poor, we should be working on education. All these things went like almost literally out the window. I mean, as far as the heat and the green stuff, it, it literally went out the window. People kept their windows open in the winter. You know, my I, I belong to a, you know, I'm, I'm an elite, I guess. I belong, now I am. I belong to a squash and tennis club. And and every, well, we always hear about, oh, green, we have to recycle, all, all this stuff for years. Fine. Okay, great. Awesome. Great idea. And then for a couple of years, we had the the heating on and all the doors open for the whole place. It's like, you know, we, we work Fahrenheit here, but it's like 20 degrees Fahrenheit outside, minus uh, five degrees Celsius, something like that. And 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 we're heating the place uh, for for room temperature. And, and it's just like I have no idea. You know, I belong. I'm, I'm the, literally the treasurer at our congregation. And, and the same thing. We're 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 very small. We're, we don't have money, and we're pouring it all into oil so we can heat the place while we have the windows open. I mean, you know, just it's kind of like a, a, a weird um, discord of, of directives. And somehow the coronavirus, because it has a little bit of the fear thing and the fear things, you know, deep in our brain, we, you know, we, that's our, you know, kind of quick reflex, so forth. It just took over and, and people forgot everything else. They forgot relative risk. They forgot, you know, uh, stratification. They forgot that children are not 80 year olds. Uh, they forgot everything. Um, and it, it's just a sadness. I, I, I often try to think of the reason I think I think you pointed out some of them. I think there's an insularity of unions. I think there's a top-down directive, and I think people are are a lot of times selfish. I mean, it's just a sadness to think that you could be selfish to the extent that you are willing to sacrifice your you know you know, you know collectively our youth's future, and the, and their present to a good you know certain extent. There's one thing that it's self-evident, so self-evident that sometimes it's not spoken about. If the children are not at school. They're not going to learn. And two million children were missing from UK schools in November of last year. Mm -hmm. Two million, a fifth. That's not the children. Now, it's not rocket science to discover that standards are going to fall. 1.6 billion were missing around the world. I've, I don't have at the top of my head the, the number missing in the, new, in the mm -hmm. US, but 
proportionate would be the same. And the other thing, so that's one thing. If they're not at school, they're not going to learn because otherwise, what's the point of schools? Um, now, the other thing is that the many of the children don't learn voluntarily, shall I say. Mm -hmm. um, and they won't learn at home if there's nobody encouraging them, as you pointed out, or stronger than that, maybe, ensuring that they work. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, and related to that is that if you've got a household that's moderately wealthy and you've got three children, the three children have laptops. But if you're not moderately wealthy, there's one laptop between all the children in the house. Now, that means even if online learning worked, which is problematical. In fact, yeah. the evidence is that it doesn't. The evidence from Holland says that it certainly doesn't. But even if it did, you do need that laptop. And then you need the will and the supervision and the internet to go with it. Absolutely, because the laptop itself is, uh, you know, what is it called, a moral hazard? I mean, there, there's a lot of stuff on the laptop that... Yeah. That uh, you know, you can be can be very diverting. I I I like to think I work, you know, and I, I get my jobs done. But I spend a lot of time uh, looking up sports scores and uh, you know following various you know fumes of trails of, of things that you know kind of perk up. There's a lot of clickable uh, items out there, and and none of us I think have the uh, perfect willpower. And, and very school, few children, very few children. I mean, we're yeah. talking about very young children here. Right. Have the capacity to learn independently absolutely you know, it's, a, it's a good thing learning independently but it's very difficult and very difficult to learn how how to read independently um now the reading ages are fundamental um to everything reading scores functional literacy literacy and it, it it has become very difficult to teach a child to read after the age of 13. Something solidifies in here. Mm -hmm. So if you haven't crossed the functional literacy, and our scores, it's about 86 points. Mm -hmm. And that is when schools are so important. Schools and parents working together can shove children who are 80-ish above 86, 86, up to 90, mm -hmm. which is where you need to be. But if you're not in school, that isn't going to happen. Um, because you can't, you can't encourage the parent to do the, shall we say, 20 minutes reading at night. You can't encourage the child to do it in school. You can't get a reading tutor to help it. You can't measure and assess to see whether they're making progress. Now, all these things are doable, but really they have to be doable in a structured method, uh, uh, strategic way in schools with all the children. Otherwise, there'll be many children that don't, don't work. And there are packages and methods that I mean we for example would have done with all 600 children in the school so you come in to me I could tell you your son's uh, reading age now and I could tell you it again in three months time and if you weren't going the right way then I could suggest uh, the teachers could suggest and so could I ways of improving it and then we could measure you again and we could have uh, age targeted reading score books directed at you personally so and it is possible to do it right across the board and so lift standards. I discovered, there's a little anecdote, not for general production, but I discovered that children, some children, 
quite a few, were deteriorating in the reading. Now, there is a normal progression between going from second, uh, primary school into secondary. Some mm-hmm. children can go back as far as a year. But I'm talking about but the next year up, actually. And when you think about it, it's not surprising because children are going through the maturation process. And that includes many of them, particularly boys, think, ah, school's not really for me. And they react accordingly. They get disinterested. They're not maybe too successful at it. And their neighborhood isn't in a reading and it's a, a girly thing. So that group of children then go backwards. But you need to know that. As an education institution, you need to know that they're going backwards. And then you need to know, you need to do something about it. Now, I discovered, and I'll just make, make this final point, not surprisingly, those that were going backwards finished bottom of their class and were the most disruptive children in the school. Shocking. And you've got to break that cycle. Right. But you, you also, there's a joke about, um, uh, there's a joke, uh, how many psychiatrists does it take to change a light bulb? And the answer is only one, but the light bulb has to really, really want to be changed. Um, and I, I was thinking of that joke, just, I, I mean, I can't tell you why, but um, precisely, but um, what, what I've noticed here is that that you care, you know, you you want, you 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 are invested, you're like that light bulb who wants to be changed. You, you have an investment in wanting the children um, to succeed and proceed. And, and I, I, I just have been struck by the uh, one of, for want of a better word, the selfishness of our teaching profession. I mean, I know that a lot of them are very insulated um, by virtue of, you know, being in unions throughout the United States. I, I'm not sure with what percentage of school districts, but there was a dichotomy. Um, I, I understand Northern Ireland, the schools are oftentimes under the aegis of a, a religious um, order, you know, Catholic schools or Protestant schools and so forth. But here, uh, you know, I think the vast majority go to what we call public schools, which is, you know, school, state schools. Um, but <clears throat> the the teachers were caring about the teachers. They didn't want to get themselves sick. And and I, I'm not looking, you know, for teachers to drop dead or anything like that. But the median age of teachers is, is younger than um, a lot of other professions. Us. <laughs> and and um, but, but they, they, they kind of held it over people's head, even in Los Angeles. They wouldn't go back until this, this, all these conditions uh, about, you know, not going back. But they were getting paid because they had union jobs. They were government workers, essentially. Uh, they were getting paid for the duration. A lot of people who didn't work were not getting paid. Um, but it was just like, we're not going back. Um, and, and the data, because, again, we couldn't do experiments, but we can do cross-regional comparisons. Um, you were pointing out state by state in the United States. You know, getting back to the masks just briefly, you know, North Dakota and South Dakota, one had a mask requirement, the other didn't. They're, they're identical states demographically, you know, by size, population, politically, all kind of, and, and, and there was no difference. And, and, and as far as the, the, the um, having kids out of school, uh, Sweden kept kids in school except for a very brief period for a couple of weeks or something like that. And they did perfectly fine. The teachers were not dropping like flies. Um, although I never see flies drop. They always seem to just kind of hang around. But anyway, they were not dropping like flies. And, and everybody did fine. I just don't know why there was this kind of this willful blindness to, to look at, at, at comparison places. I mean, you may not have the answers, you know, but I mean, you know, I, I live in a neighborhood, a bunch of houses and so forth. 
you know, one guy gets a snowblower, I'm shoveling. I'm like, huh, what about that? I ask and I say, well, how does it work out? Well, this is, this has this problem, whatever. But but like people learn from each other. This is how we work. And 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 to have everybody sequestered and and isolated was was obviously counterproductive for those children. But it was also emblematic of not even you know having the curiosity to look at other places and see how things are being done. I think there was just so much lockstep across our country and probably around the kind of industrial world or the the, the first world or whatever you want to call it um, that it's just incredible incredible to me and you know who you know who made these directives why were they followed so well why were there no independent thinkers like Hugh McCarthy well I I have to say I can't answer that um I wish I could um the and I have to say the teachers that I knew were caring teachers the reading program that I've just uh flagged up could only be done by the entire staff, I, I, I wasn't. I wasn't doing. It. I was doing a wee bit, but I wasn't doing it solely. Um, now, what what the populace were were brainwashed, because newspapers, TV. Uh, every time you went into a shop, wear a mask, stay six feet apart, don't come in through the door if there are more than fifteen here. Do your hands. Put the mask. On. It was. Blanket, wall to wall, fear mongering. Mm. Now, so one voice, more or less one voice in the education establishment. I, I, just to, to say to you, our schools are not the, the same body, the Department of Education regulates them all. The Catholic Church owns the schools here. The Protestant churches actually don't, they're sort of mm. state schools, but the message comes down. It's the same message. They all operate the same regulations, actually. Um, so these regulations are how schools operate. So regulations come from the Department of Health, actually, through the Department of Education into schools, through the principal and the Board of Governors. Now, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be possible for individual teachers to defy the principal and the board of governors mm -hmm. and their union directive. It just wouldn't be possible. Um, I have to say in my position, I was retired. Um, I was able to speak out of the boards. You asked me, was I censored? Well, I was censored by the BBC. Um, I was cut off on a radio program talking about mass. I had the science degree. The broadcaster didn't. Told mm -hmm. me he knew nothing about science. Mm -hmm. I, I told him he knew nothing. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then he could phone out. I, I, I've been censored by LinkedIn. Some of my articles, I spoke at a Health and Truth, a Christian conference, actually. Uh, uh, well, it's it's on Odyssey, but other than that, it's not seen the light of day. Uh, because I keep on asking the same questions. Now, so in defense of the teaching staff, it would be very difficult. You're quite right. The vast majority of them are about 40 and under. Their survival chance is 99.9% or thereabouts. Mm -hmm. They're under no threat whatsoever. But they didn't know that. Nobody told them. And no. if I told them, I was looked at with, with, with two heads because actually they're powerless, to be quite honest with you. 
they were powerless. They believed the narrative. If it's not on the BBC, I don't, I know you've loads of channels, and I suppose we have loads of channels, but most people regard the BBC as the gospel. And it and in fact it continues. And our our National Health Service, if you look at their website, wear a mask. Get your vaccine before there's it's stopping at it. Maybe now. So get your vaccine before they're stopped. Yeah, you know, it's still pursuing the same germ, uh, same story. You you mentioned there about regulations. The regulations around school closures are, are not the regulations, sorry, the evidence around school closures. Quite clear. And absolutely no effect. The German health minister, actually, as you probably know, Lauterbach, is, has just come out and said so. It, what, what the phrase was, COVID restrictions were idiocy. School closures were an unnecessary mistake. As a German lockdown chief. Now, to be fair to him, he at least has said it. Um, I wait. I hear the deafening silence. As I mentioned there, I think there are nine policies. None of them worked. We've been through them before, Randall. And, uh, none of them worked. Yeah. Children, are, children are not at risk. They weren't a danger. Asymptomatic. Just got to hear the PCR test was terrible. Closing schools reduced the spread. Lockdowns reduced spread. Vaccines re reduced child mortality. Masks reduced spread. Vaccine passports reduced spread. Even the government's own public affairs committee recognised that they had introduced a policy without due regard for evidence and cost. That's vaccine passports. The all-party committee on masks said the same thing about masks. So these are government committees. Most of my articles, as you are aware, are based on government pronouncements and government statistics. And the co-chairs of the all-party group in Westminster on COVID said that there is no evidence that masks work. And then they say there's no evidence that vaccine passports work. They haven't investigated properly. Doesn't make any difference. It doesn't seem to have made any difference. Now, you mentioned our authorities. You can be fairly sure that our authorities have the information that's contained in those articles. Data, statistics, evidence from their own sources because I and several others of my group have written to them. The Public Health Authority, the Department of Education, the Department of Health, our local MLAs, the, uh, the Health Committee, they know it. Um, do they read the evidence? I can't answer that. No, it's a funny thing. <clears throat> so uh, my college cohort, um, you know, went in a lot, you know, some of them became writers and lawyers and doctors. And anyway, the ones that became writers and professors, um, they're always, they always have a cause. They're always, um, you know, worried about, um, I don't know, at the time, uh, Salvador Allende was, you know, president in Chile. They, they worried about the 
um, the injustice. They worry about the um, the Indians of the Amazon. They worry about um, all these kind of far-flung causes of people, you know, in dire straits, and they want to rectify. They want justice and aka social justice, which I think is some, a little bit of an oxymoron, um, because I think justice can't be social. Um, but but when it comes to this, this is a, a kind of an own goal, mm -hmm. as they say in, in football, um, where, you know, we are creating these um, inequities and justices. Uh, we are taking, we're depriving our own people and, and we're locking them down. This was, this was never, ever uh, a treatment for any illness, uh, especially uh, a, a viral one, uh, you know, respiratory cold, basically, or an influenza level. Um, uh, respiratory illness, it, it, you can't lock down air. You know, air trans, translates, trans, and, and, and so, but, but the, the, there was silence. There was, and these are mostly voices from the left who, you know, care about uh, a distant jungle and they care about, you know, a distant tribe and so forth. And maybe they're working, maybe they're putting funds together, but, but this is our own tribe. This is the, like the, the, the kind of cruelty we perpetrated on our own children and our own class um, uh, differences and so forth. Um, and and it was a little bit, you know, Mary, Marie Antoinette-like. You know, we, people who were insulated did not get it. They didn't respect it. And they had this concept that they were saving lives, but, you know, but they were not. Um, you know, again, death tolls um, in the United States were actually lower in places that were open. We, we have our crucible experiments of, of you know, the, the uh, federal system that we have different states with their different state rules. And Florida has a higher percentage of old people as the highest in any of any state in the U.S. It's, it's God's waiting room, uh, they call it. Um, and it had a lower mortality rate than New York. And, and they have almost the same aggregate population. And this was happening in real time. This is happening on, on, on a whole bunch of data sites. You know, when people you know, get to hear the news here from MSNBC or CNN or something like that. You know, there, there are other places to look. You know, I, I, I carry the Library of Congress with me along with every other major tome and so forth I carry it around in my pocket. Uh, these days, everybody does. Uh, you know, some people just don't care to look, uh, which is sad. Um, and, and it's just a, a very weird thing that the people who are always, you know, carrying on and caviling about uh, injustice were perpetrating it um and, and everything was was thrown out so that we could be in lockstep and it was a very strange kind of power um thrill i think and it was a, a an aggregation of power and people i just i think the people you know kind of put the lie to some of their their um you know self-aggrandized um you know justice themes yeah i don't know what happened to freedom um and freedom of choice and you're quite right, the very people who shout loudest about dem democracy and freedom, certainly here in Northern Ireland, were the very ones that removed it. Um, and you talk about the effect of our own children. One million children are awaiting appointments for mental health in the UK. Oh, oh this is just in the, yeah. One million, 445. This is skyrocketed here as well. I, I, I realise that I, somewhere in front of me I have the data for... Uh, hospital visits for 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 children um, and and I mean those meant that offset 
the body I spoke about, reported on the huge rise in mental-related illness, self-harms, eating disorders, abuse, um, those sort of things that are associated with that. Yeah. So that, that's a government inspector. And while I'm on the subject, the total number of children awaiting hospital, now these are ordinary hospital appointments, and I'll just check, has risen by almost 50% in a year. 361,000 children in England are waiting hospital appointments. That's plus the million that are waiting appointments for mental health issues. That's quite simply appalling. And people are saying, oh, how did that happen? Well, yeah. it happened because, because you, 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 who, who you could predicted this. You know, I, I pointed out so many times that, you know, if you commit a crime, you go to prison. Okay, that's bad. Nobody likes being there. <laughs> Fortunately, I, I have not, uh, you know, had the opportunity um, uh, or the instructions. Uh, but but if you're in prison, you're in the general population, you're doing your tasks and, I don't know, hammering out license plates or whatever they do these days. Uh, if you do something bad in prison, what do they do? They, they put you in solitary. That's that's the the creme de la creme, the inverse creme de la creme of, of punishment. The, the, you're punished by being in prison. You've, you've been essentially locked down. You've been restricted in your movements. You can't go certain places. You have to keep social distance. You... Uh, you know, all your your actions are monitored. Only certain number of people can be in a certain place. So we have all the outward uh, restrictions. And then on top of it, if you do something bad, then then you go into solitary, which means you're completely by yourself. And then the mind kind of just dissolves. I mean, you know, we like to think of ourselves as, uh, you know, kind of rational beings and we have uh, physical presence, so forth. But this disappears, apparently, when you are just completely isolated. And that, yet we did both, essentially. Uh, we imprisoned people and then we essentially put, you know, people into isolation. I, I brought, I've brought this up a number of times and I apologize uh, to anybody who's seen more than one, one of my episodes, but uh, one of my friends, uh, his 90 ish, uh, 80, you know, ladies uh, mother was ha having a terminal illness and, and God rest her soul. She's passed from us since. Um, but for her, her fine, as it turns out, her final year and a half, uh, she was in, in solitary and, and self-inflicted, you know, nobody came to see her. Uh, her grandchildren, uh, her her nieces, her nephews, etc. Nobody came to see her, um, and she never went outdoors once. Uh, I'm not sure what the outdoors would have done, but it's a beautiful picture. Uh, that um, I mean, mind you, they they were all in tune and 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 aligned with this, and I I hope she passed her days, you know, peacefully and so forth. Um, but there's a beautiful picture where she, you know, I don't know, sometime in 2021, she went outside. This was an event. So she felt the sun on her face without a mask. She took the mask off. Even outdoors, she took it off for a second to feel the sun on her face for, I guess, the last time. Um, and it's a, it's a beautiful photograph. And I hope, you know, their memory of her is, is all it can and should be. But it, it's, it's just, um, it's, it's a very strange situation. I've saw this many, many times that people who had terminal illnesses, um, you know, they, they, they went overboard. I mean, I just don't, I don't get it. You have a, a very, you know, there's quantity of life and there's quality of life and those things hopefully work together. And we have, you know, the, the, the number of days we, we can have and each one is wonderful. But if you know your days are numbered, I mean, I, I would imagine you'd want to, you know, be able to kind of carry on with people. And, and I just, you know, I didn't say anything because it's not my family, but I, I, I've seen this so many times and it's just a, a complete sadness that people have been able to, 
um, I guess, you know, kind of swallow this narrative whole. Um, and it's, a, you know, there, there was a lot of other information out there and people, I guess, willfully or, or guilefully sometimes didn't not even bother to check. And I, I hang out with a kind of a, a credentialed crowd. Um, and so I know a lot of MDs, PhDs, MD, PhDs, MD, PhDs, MPH, MPH, all these, you know, abbreviations and so forth. And, and I couldn't get a straight answer out of almost anybody. And, and most of the response was shut up. Um, you know, you're not part of the program. And, and it was a lot of in-group, out-group stuff. And you get ostracized and yelled at for having beliefs that are contrary. And frankly, we're in, in aligned with all of that science ever presented prior. Um, I'm just going to bring up one topic. You know, it's this kind of concept of natural immunity, vaccinating people after the fact. You know, at this point, uh, you're talking about vaccinating children. Um, and, and so they presumably, you know, young kids at birth and so where they haven't had COVID-19, but COVID-19 is not around anymore. SARS-CoV-2 SARS -CoV doesn't exist anywhere in humans on earth. And, and we're acting as if it is, and we're continuing to, to go down a path where we ignore the fact that when people have had exposure to Omicron, there's no reason to get a bivalent vaccine. When they've had exposure to SARS-CoV, either from previous vaccines or the illness, there's no reason to get a vaccine after the fact. Dr. Fauci, the vaunted, you know, he admitted this in, in, in 2004, he was on a, um, a show and he, he was talking about one of the influenzas. And it's like, he's like, I'm going to do my Fauci voice. There's no, absolutely no reason to ever get a vaccine after you've had the illness. The illness is perfect, complete natural immunity. Why would you get a vaccine on top of that? It could only, you know, it could only bring problems and so forth. And, and, and today, if you look at that one up, you know, Snopes and everybody, they're like, oh, that's not what he meant. And all this kind of stuff. Uh, anyway, I, I'm sorry for kind of getting lit up here, but I'm just uh, continually shocked. And uh, I don't know. I don't know where we go from this. We're, we're heading towards the end of our hour. And um, uh, while I've enjoyed it, I don't want to monopolize uh, the rest of your day. Uh, so perhaps, Hugh, I, I'm going to show some of your um, uh, Daily Skeptic and your Substack articles, but maybe you can tell us uh, some hopeful words and, and how we proceed and how people can follow you and what is the message and what we can take home and what should we do for this and for the next one? <laughs> um, well, for, just a, a closing message. Someday our children are going to want to know why their lives were restricted and in some cases ruined. And I'm hoping by that point they will have done their own research. And my fear, and I've said it before, uh, is that if we don't recognize and acknowledge the harms, society could do it again. I'm quoting Professor Heinegger again. We, being him, but, but me too, we believe that we must record as much as possible of what went on for posterity, hoping that the catastrophic mistakes are not repeated in future. In this way, the suffering will not have been in vain. And, and I kind of feel that. I, I sort of started an article. Why do I have to keep repeating myself? You know, so it sounds like a teacher, you know. Well, um, and I and, and come up with uh, really words from Ionatis, Professor Ionatis. We destroyed our kids and we can do it again. And that's what we must try to ensure. And that's why we're doing this, so that we can spread the word out Look, you were not at risk here. And now you must fight for the freedoms that previous generations, I think, secured for us. And you must fight for it by standing up. And I don't know whether 
where you are on the various other things that appear to be affecting us. We've got 15-minute cities. We've got digital IDs uh, coming along. We've got maybe vaccine passports are making a return. Yeah. And it it seems to me part and parcel of uh, uh, a larger picture that, in my mind, is coming together, whether that's a conspiracy or a follow the logic, I'm not sure. Um, but you're, you're, it seems to me important that we won't know what we've lost until we, right. we lose it. Yeah, no, And no. It, it is important to try to keep on, as I said, recording and then promoting and informing in yep. the hope that one of the messages of an advertising campaign is that one sort of philosophic advertisers repeat, 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 and repeat. Mm-hmm. The fear propaganda from the government was repeat, repeat, and repeat. And of course, as a teacher and indeed as a parent, you had to say the same thing over and over again before it sunk in. And I suppose uh, that's where I'm at. Say the same thing over and over again. And I, I believe now that the tide has turned. It may not have turned right at the leadership level, but I do believe that the the other part of the iceberg. Yeah, I believe that that part of the iceberg is turned. Almost nobody believes in masks. Almost nobody believes in the PCR testing, and pretty much everybody knows that children aren't at risk at all. Yeah. And pretty well, most people look around and say, "Well, look, well." Everybody's got through the winter again. All these huge cry, crowds and nothing happened. So I'm encouraged by that. All right, perfect. I'm going to just show people your um, uh, your Substack uh, here. This is uh, humacarthy.substack.com, and you've got a whole bunch of articles. This is um, why would you vaccinate babies against COVID? Uh, this uh, is based in part on your article at the Daily Skeptic. Uh, same thing. <clears throat> uh, questions I recommend. Uh, the Daily Skeptic in general, I published there. Um, and um, uh, I th- people think people should follow you uh, on, on Twitter as well. Um, I'm at Dr. Randall Bach. Uh, what's your Twitter handle? Ha, I, uh, I'm afraid you'll have to look at my Substack to yeah. find it. It's there. It's a complicated yeah, number. Enough. And then uh, just as a, a last bit of shameless self-promotion, um, I have my book out, uh, Overturning Zika. Uh, the pandemic that never was, um, uh, and it's coming out in Brazil shortly. Um, so you can find it on Amazon here in the U.S. or anywhere else uh, on on Earth, I guess. Um, and the Amazon is in Brazil, so that's a little bit ironic <laughs> or coincidental. Um, and so uh, has you know really I, there are some some redolence. There's some aspects of the Zika pandemic which came and went. And it was overblown and so forth. So people can make their analogies as they will. It was a different thing, but um, I found it fascinating. I'm not a, uh, an expert on that. I was never an expert on that. I was never a tropical tropical disease guy or infectious disease, but I found that fascinating that everything kind of was blown up and then it all disappeared. Nobody's ever explained or, or apologized. And that seems to be the way things run. Anyway, um, Hugh, you can stay on for a few minutes, but thank you everybody for listening. Uh, if you'd like Hugh back on, uh, Uh, Just yell. Um, Please comment and share uh, this as much as possible. Thank you so much, uh, Mr. McCarthy, for everything you do.